Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crossover Across Time podcast. We're back on our normal schedule, uh, our Friday episode for week 18 of the 2023-2024 NBA season. I'm your host, Karsten. Welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show. Um, both previous listeners and brand new listeners alike, we want to just express our appreciation and thank you for tuning in to the show. Um, yeah, as I said, we're back on a normal uh, schedule of, you know, segments and and coverage. We'll be doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, same segments on those days as we kind of had normally. So, of course, today we've got our game summaries from last night's return to action. Um, a lot of interesting games and a lot of, you know, starting, restarting conversations of of playoff chases, especially in the Western Conference. But uh, we'll talk about the East certainly as well. We have a lot of news to, uh, to cover from the, the week or so that we <clears throat> have not been covering the news. Um, we're, of course, doing another franchise focus this time for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, and then we'll check in on our predictions real quick because we haven't done that for a little bit as well before jumping into our weekend forecast, getting you ready for this weekend of games and uh, closing out the show from there. So we've got a great show planned for you, and we'll start it off with uh, our game summaries and key news from the last night of games in the last week or so of news. All right, our five-on-five drill, we've picked five of the key games from last night's 12-game slate that we're going to dive into a little more deeply, and we start with a light one, in a sense. Um, The New York Knicks getting back to winning basketball in Philadelphia against the 76ers, uh, 110-96. The Knicks win in Philly, um, despite the debut for the Philly native Kyle Lowry, um, his first game as a Sixer in Philadelphia. Um, of course, from Philly, played at Villanova. Great storyline there, but yeah, the Knicks still victorious in this game. Um, you know, they led the whole way. Sixers kept it fairly competitive, um, especially fourth quarter. They had it in, in single digits, um, but just not able to quite close that gap. Knicks, the better rebounding team, defensive numbers team, less turnovers, um, shot better from the floor. Um, just a sharper team, if you will, on this particular night for the Sixers. They were led by Tyrese Maxey, of course, still without Embiid, um, is going to be out for another couple of weeks at least. We'll, of course, keep you updated with any and all updates on that timeline, uh, because that's going to be a big storyline for Philadelphia's playoff hopes. Um, of course, at this point, with the number of games he's missed, he's already been eliminated from the MVP conversation, and that's a hot-button topic of discussion this season with uh, the new player participation policy, um, but that's already decided. You know, he won't be the MVP. He won't repeat. So now it's all just about the playoff hopes of this squad. But yeah, Maxi, 35 points, six boards, five assists, nine of nine from the free-throw line, four of 11 from three. Uh, the newest sixer, uh, or second newest sixer, maybe, Buddy Heald, 14 points, four of nine from three, uh, and six assists as well, starting in the backcourt alongside Maxi. Off the bench, Kelly Oubre Jr., 14 points, and then Kyle Lowry, the newest sixer for sure, 11 points, five assists, and six stitches as uh, 
it was eloquently put. He he had a uh, an injury, a facial laceration in the first half. Returned to play in the second. Um, something that you know the Philly crowd, of course, is going to latch onto. Oh, that's a you know that's a Philly way to do things. Seems like a lot of markets do that when it's all about the you know the hard nose, blue collar aesthetic, uh, or at least ethos that they try and emulate. I think that's just true of you know, a lot of people in general. Anyways, that's a whole tangent. As far as the Knicks go with their box scores and their contributors in this game, they had some some balanced scoring led by uh, one of their most re- recent acquisitions as well, Bayon Bogdanovich, 22 points, 6 of 6 from three-point range, 61% from the floor overall. Hot shooting for, uh, for him, three steals as well. Again, he has potential to be a great acquisition for the Knicks. Then they got 21 points, 12 assists from Jalen Brunson, 18 from both Josh Hart and Precious Achiwa. Hart with 12 rebounds, Achiwa with 11 rebounds. Hart started uh, this particular game at small forward. And then Dante DiVincenzo, 16 points, three boards, three assists, two steals, two blocks. Uh, Stuffing the stat sheet there. Brunson had two steals and a block. Achiwa had two steals and a block. Defensively, again, really getting the job done there. Jericho Sims, 10 rebounds off the bench, controlling the glass. Uh, Brunson distributing. Guys shooting well. It's a great mix. And we talked about the Knicks on our bonus episode yesterday in terms of the potential with this roster. Even without Robinson and uh, no Julius Randle playing in this game, uh, he's out for a little bit as well. They still have a great balance. And when those guys are back, you wonder how potent the Knicks can be, especially with the veteran coach in Tom Thibodeau. So I won't go on about the Knicks again because we've already talked about them very recently, but a big win for them against the Sixers, and that's the first game we're focusing on. Next, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers hosting the Orlando Magic. Of course, the Cavs, arguably the hottest team in the NBA over the past month or so, um, especially leading up to the All-Star break. Cavs, along with teams like the Clippers and the Knicks, have been great teams excuse me over the last couple of months but the Cavs especially had the most recent hot streak Um, but they lose this game they had lost their win streak before the all-star break I believe Um, but then they lose this game to the Orlando Magic in Cleveland 116 and 109 the Magic win on the road um, down to the wire game for the most part Um, 11 lead changes in this game the Magic led for the whole fourth quarter um, but much of that, it was single digits. It was close game. Um, never really fully decided till the final minutes of the game. Um, credit to the Magic. They were outplayed in a couple of categories. Um, field goal percentage, uh, rebounding, assists. But the Magic shot much better from three. They shot 56% from three as a team. Uh, 89% from the free throw line. Better than the Cavs. And they had less turnovers as well. So some of those are certainly key deciding factors in this game. Uh, box score for the Cavs, all five starters in double figures, but no one with more than 18 points. Three guys had 18 points. That was Darius Garland, 18 points, 10 assists. Max Struess starting in place of Donovan Mitchell, who did not play in this game. Um, and also Jared Allen, 18 points, 10 rebounds uh, in this game. Both Jared Allen and Darius Garland with two steals each as well. Isaac Okoro with 17 points, uh, and then Evan Mobley, 14 points eight boards, six assists, not to mention two steals, two blocks for him. Um, so again, not bad all-around performance. 
not a lot of bench scoring for them. Um, and there was a ton of bench scoring for the Magic. How about this stat? The Magic bench outscored the Cavs bench 63-24. to 24. That was perhaps the most deciding factor in this game, really. Um, but the, the Magic were led by one of their bench pieces, uh, center Maritz Wagner, 22 points for him. Uh, his brother Franz had 14, uh, 12 points each for both Paolo Bencaro, Wendell Carter Jr., and Joe Ingles. Ingles coming off the bench, as did Cole Anthony, who had 13 with six assists. So well-balanced scoring bench production, really a big factor for the Magic in this one. And again, a big win for them. Of course, they had slipped lately, but they're still a team that uh, you anticipate is going to be at the at the very least in the play-in picture. If not in the playoff picture, of course, they were as high as a third or fourth seed in the Eastern Conference earlier in the season. Um, but they're they're a good team, and especially against the Cavs team that still w- with that loss, they're still eighteen and three over their last twenty one games. Uh, so you figure eighteen and two over the previous twenty games going into this one, huge win for Orlando as they look to build momentum towards the postseason. And uh, you know, great job to the bench doing their job in that game. The next one, perhaps the most pivotal, one of the most pivotal, or at least one of the most star studded and talked about. Um, you know, really a rivalry at this point over the last couple of years, the Dallas Mavericks hosting the Phoenix Suns and the Mavs extending their win streak. They have seven straight wins now with this 123 to 113 win at home versus those Phoenix Suns. Um, Phenomenal stuff for them. They're starting to build back momentum after a bit of a slump compared to a hotter start to the season. So they've been up and down, more ups and downs, certainly. And a big win for them against the rival Suns. Suns controlled the first half for the most part. Then Dallas took a lead beginning of the third quarter, and they never gave up that lead, uh, leading by as many as 15 en route to the victory in this game. As far as box scores, let's look at Phoenix. They were led by Devin Booker, Booker, 35 points, 8 assists for him, uh, 62% from the floor. They got 23 from Kevin Durant with 6 boards, uh, 2 of 8 from 3, a little bit of a rough night there. Uh, otherwise fairly productive, 16 for Merrick Gordon, uh, 10 for both Grayson Allen and Royce O'Neal. O'Neal off the bench, he also had nine boards, and then 11 points for Josh Okogie coming off the bench as well. So solid games for all those guys. No Bradley Beal, certainly uh, leaving them a little bit more shorthanded, um, but credit to Dallas and the the duo of Kyrie and Luka. Luca with 41 points, 11 assists, and nine rebounds, not to mention three steals. Uh, great percentages, 50-50, 100, seven of seven from the free throw line, um, but 50% from the floor, 50% from three in that game. Uh, this is his 11th game with 40 points or more, which is uh, he leads the league in that category. Uh, so he continues to be impressive. And that is important for the Mavericks because they are 10 and one now when Luca scores at least 40 points. Uh, so that trend continues to be uh, cemented. Kyrie had 29 points in the game uh, on 60% shooting from the floor and from three even hotter percentages. Um, so those two red hot, then they got 12 points from both PJ Washington, the recent acquisition who also had six boards. And then Tim Hardaway Jr. off the bench had 12 points as well. Uh, Good mix, you know, and again, we, me and Wyatt, uh, of course, our, our co-host, 
uh, what were you both high on the uh, acquisitions and the moves made by the Mavericks at the trade deadline, Washington being brought in, and then you have Gafford being able to back up Derek Lively, who has a chance to flourish as the starting center, the rookie this season. Um, that shores up their front court so much more. Really, the only question would be, you know, starting forward, uh, small forward, Josh Green starting in this particular game long term. Maybe he can make that work. Certainly had a solid game for them and has been a, a good piece. Um, we'll have to see if that's a long term solution. Um, but that would really be the only question mark. I like Dallas and it seems like they're they're turning a corner. Uh, and again, pivotal win. This tied the Suns and Mavericks in terms of record, both 33 wins, 23 losses. But the Mavericks clinched the season series, which means they have the tiebreaker. So very pivotal with these two teams, very close in the standings in a hotly contested Western Conference. That could be very much a necessary tiebreaker, depending on how the rest of the season goes. So big win for the Mavs in this rivalry matchup. So that's our third game. Our fourth game, excuse me, perhaps a more consequential game, especially a higher uh, value in terms of uh, winning, more winning teams in the West. These are two of the top teams in the Western Conference. The Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Thunder hosting the LA Clippers in a, a big matchup. Um, lots of storylines as well. Of course, a lot of former uh Thunder players on the Clippers roster, uh, Russell Westbrook, most notably, but also James Harden and uh, Paul George. All those guys, former Thunder players, Westbrook, the greatest Thunder career of any of them, but all noteworthy careers for the Thunder. So that was a fun side note to this storyline. It was also the debut for Gordon Hayward, the recent trade acquisition for the Thunder. Um, and he didn't have the greatest game, but it didn't matter too much because the Thunder got the win. And again, a, a huge matchup. 129 to 107, the Thunder win at home versus those uh, visiting Clippers. Close game, especially first half, 10 lead changes throughout this game. Uh, however, late third quarter, the Thunder were able to build a bigger lead. And then they held on through the rest of the, uh, the game, fourth quarter onward. Uh, they're the much better shooting team in this game. Uh, out-rebounded the Clippers as well, uh, less turnovers. So that fourth quarter run really kind of cemented the the difference in terms of this game and these two teams' play. Um, you look at stats for the Clippers. They were led by Paul George, uh, excuse me, by Kawhi Leonard, 20 points for him. Uh, Paul George with 14, struggled shooting the ball. He had seven boards and six assists, though. Um, off the bench, Norman Powell had 19 points. James Harden with 17 points six boards. Uh, they got 13 points, 12 rebounds from Ivica Zubats. Uh, so those were the double figure scores. Russell Westbrook, only two points and five assists in this game. One of nine shooting uh, rough night in his return to a place where he was uh, an MVP. And of course the uh, triple latest triple double threat, um, not latest, but he, you know, brought back the conversation and, and broke many records. Uh, of the great Oscar Robertson. Anyways, return, you know, individually didn't do that great. Didn't get the win for the team that time around, but certainly the Clippers are still a very potent team in the West. So credit to the Thunder. And they had a great all-round team game. Shea Gilders-Alexander, 31 points, eight assists in this game, 60% from the floor, three of six from three. Uh, fantastic. Still an MVP level name this season. No question. Uh, Lou Dort, 
actually second in scoring this game, 19 points for him. Uh, they got 18 from Santa Clara, Jalen Williams, who also had six assists, three blocks, and a steal. Chet Holmgren, the rookie, 17 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks, and three assists. And then he got 12 points, five boards for Josh Giddy. Um, off the bench, Aaron Wiggins, Isaiah Joe, both with nine points, so pretty close to double figures themselves. Uh, great game for excuse me great game for those guys as well and again hayward uh 13 minutes in this game no points on two shot attempts grabbed four rebounds um but it'll probably take a little bit of time to figure out his exact fit in the lineup in terms of minutes uh role what they look for him to do uh certainly he's already going to have some value as that veteran presence um, but yeah, huge win for, for them. Uh, forgot to mention with SGA again, another 30 point game. That is his 40th 30 point game this season, which leads the league, um, in that category. So SGA leads the league in 30 point games or 30 or more point games. And then Luca leads the league in 40 or more point games. So both those guys in that conversation, uh, top scores this season, um, and then also similar to that Mav Suns breakdown with this win, the Thunder clinched their season series against the Clippers and consequently the tiebreaker. So again, uh, big tiebreakers and and valuable things to have in your favor and in your pocket. When you come to the end of the season, down to the wire, the last week or two of the season, you know, you have those things to rely on when it comes to what you need to do to try and get home court advantage, um, you know, top seating, higher seating, favorable matchups, all those type of things. Uh, so, yeah, pivotal win for sure. And that's our fourth game. Our final game, similar category, less so because of the uh, lower standing of these two teams in the standings, but uh, certainly uh, high stakes in terms of, you know, they need hot, this positioning. They want to jump up or they could be at risk of falling out of any kind of playoff picture. We're talking the Golden State Warriors hosting the Los Angeles Lakers, a rivalry, a California matchup, a matchup of Curry and LeBron and stars on both sides of the floor. But of course, again, these two teams very close in the standing. So it was an important game in that sense. No LeBron in this game for the Lakers. Certainly a key factor. Um, Warriors get the win. Hard to say if they had LeBron, if the Lakers had LeBron, if they would have won. You just don't know. Um, but in his absence, the Warriors get the win, 128 to 110, your final score in San Francisco. Uh, close first half, Warriors st- started to go on a run towards the end of the half, though, leading by uh, nearly 10 points. Third quarter, they cement a bit more of a lead, not quite the signature Warriors run that you look for in the third quarter, uh, but they just built a steady lead. Um, by midway through the fourth quarter, the game was was pretty much over. Um, just a little bit sharper uh, as a team, better shooting, certainly from three-point range, and uh, they are able to get the job done. For the Lakers, in LeBron's absence, they were led by Anthony Davis, 27 points, 15 rebounds, and three blocks. Great all-around numbers for the, uh, once again, all-star, well-deserved. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, 18 points, nine assists, and two steals. Pretty solid. 16 for Austin Reeves, and then 12 points for Torian Prince. Not bad all around for the Lakers, but again, the Warriors led by one Stephen Curry. 32 points, 8 assists, and 3 steals. He was 6 of 13 from 3-point range. Um, Almost a signature Curry stat line 
uh, with a little bit of amplified steals, but he's still been sensational this season. And they're finding perhaps a little more consistent consistency with what to expect from the supporting cast. Uh, Andrew Wiggins with one of his better games this year, 20 points uh, with two assists, three boards, a steal, a block, uh, good percentages all around. Jonathan Kaminga, 12 points, three boards, three assists. They got 10 points and nine boards for Brandon Pajemski. Draymond starting at center, eight points, seven boards, five assists, and a block. And then off the bench, Trace Jackson Davis, a rookie, eight of 10 from the floor for 17 points. Uh, pretty impressive production for him. He's had some nice shining moments, uh, as of course has had uh, Pajemski. Clay Thompson coming off the bench again, uh, continuing to struggle. He shot one of nine from the floor this game. Uh, definitely concerning stuff in that category, but it's, you know, small consolation. They're getting uh, a great rookie year from Pajemski so far, who's take you know able to start and and do well enough in uh, Clay's absence from the starting role, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, big win for them. Warriors, of course, have been hot over the last couple of weeks. They were hot going into the All Star break. They're picking up kind of where they left off. They're nine and two in their last eleven games. Um, with this win, they tie the season series one game, you know, one game apiece. Um, they now have moved up ahead of the Lakers, I believe, uh, in the standings. Let me double check that. No, they're close. Lakers are ninth in the West. Warriors just behind them in tenth, um, separated by just a half game, um, but narrowing the gap. Uh, again, they they're uh, on a roll lately and. They have two more games left to play in the season series, so there's every chance to get the tiebreaker, uh, which would be a huge, as these teams are so close to the, you know, the the play in mix and uh, a slip one way or the other could be out of the play in and playoff entirely, or into the play in and with a chance to make the playoffs and see what you can do in that category. So big win uh, there. All three of these Western Conference games. We talked about certainly huge implications, and uh, those that's it for those games. So we wanted to dive into a little more in depth as far as the remaining games uh, and the the, the scores and, and stats to know from those games. Uh, we start with the Toronto Raptors hosting the Brooklyn Nets, winning at home one twenty one ninety three. Um, then the Indiana Pacers coming off the All Star weekend that they hosted get the win one twenty nine to one fifteen against the. Uh, division rival Detroit Pistons, Tyrese Halliburton with a double double, twenty five points, thirteen assists, overcoming a thirty point go- uh, thirty point game from uh, one Cade Cunningham. Then the uh, New Orleans Pelicans won at home against the Houston Rockets, one twenty seven to one o five. Solid game from CJ McCollum, twenty eight points, six boards, six assists. But how about uh, Herb Jones, seven steals in this game? Career high and a, a very high number, anyways. Uh, very impressive stuff there. Next, the Boston Celtics won in Chicago against the Bulls, one twenty nine to one twelve. Your final. Um, that is a seventh straight win for the Celtics, uh, who continue to secure their position as the top team in the league at this moment. Uh, the Charlotte Hornets won in Utah against the Jazz, one fifteen to one hundred seven. Your final. Uh, they had a 30 to 17 fourth quarter run that helped seal the win for them. And the Hornets are four and oh, since uh, their acquisitions, their trade deadline acquisitions, uh, Seth Curry, 
and, you know, Davis Bertans and, and Grant Williams uh, join the lineup. So interesting stats for them. They've, they've certainly turned a corner a little bit in their play, let down loss for the jazz uh, post all-star break. Uh, the Denver Nuggets won at home against the Washington Wizards, 130-110, to your final. Uh, Kyle Kuzma with 31 points and 12 boards in that game, but it was Jokic with you know yet another record-setting type of night. Stat line of 21 points, 19 boards, and 15 assists, and he was a perfect 10 of 10 from the floor, uh, you know, from field goal uh, as far as field goal percentage is concerned. He joined Russell Westbrook and LeBron James, uh, with with this game as the only players with a triple-double against every team they've played in their career. Now, an interesting side note, of course, LeBron and Westbrook have played for multiple teams, so they've played against all 30 franchises. Meanwhile, Jokic has only ever played for Denver, so he technically has it slightly easier. He only has to get a triple-double against 29 different teams. Um, if he were to ever move on from the nuggets or get traded or something in some bizarre future. Um, he would then have to, you know, get a triple double against the nuggets to be you know, back in this category again, but, but still very impressive, but even more impressive. Uh, the first player in history with a stat line of, you know, 20 or more points, 15 or more rebounds, 15 or more assists and a hundred percent field goal shooting. So continues to be stellar. He will certainly be a name in the MVP category uh, and race, as could be another guy uh, on the winning team in this last matchup, the Sacramento Kings winning at home against the San Antonio Spurs, 127-122, to 122, your final. Sabonis, yeah, that'd be a bit of a dark horse pick, but his triple-double numbers have been impressive. Another triple-double for him in this game, 22 points, 11 boards, 11 assists as they get the win, but definitely don't want to overlook what Wemby did. Certainly hard to overlook him in general, but... His stat line, very impressive, 19 points, 13 rebounds, four assists, five steals, and five blocks. Already impressive. Um, if he had one more assist, of course, it would have been the uh, elusive five-by-five five stat line uh, that doesn't get as celebrated as a triple-double, but is always a fun uh, statistical note whenever that happens, as rare as it, as rare as it is. But he also became the third fastest player to reach 1,000 points, 500 rebounds, and 150 blocks uh, behind only Shaquille O'Neal and David Robinson. Again, David Robinson, always a note with Wemby stats, but he's always in the conversation of some of those guys with the type of rookie year and the type of stats he puts up. Um, I, I don't know if his rookie year is as great as some of those guys, especially in terms of team success, but he still is very much as good as advertised and uh, he's going to be very exciting to watch for, for many years to come. So that is the end of our game summaries and we'll real quick jump into uh, our key news as well. Now we'll start with a bunch of transactions, a lot of different signings and moves made. I figured it'd be a little bit easier if we went at it with the uh, division of, you know, extensions that were signed uh, players that were given standard contracts then two-way contracts, and then finally 10-day contracts. Um, we'll start with the extension. There, there was one extension signed uh, for the Minnesota Timberwolves veteran point guard Mike Conley signed a two-year $21 million contract extension. So he's locked in for at least a little bit longer uh, with this Timberwolves team that has a chance to be vying for a Western Conference title this season. 
So it seems like a solid signing for them. Uh, then we have a few standard contracts of note. These are guys that were on two-way deals with their teams but have been converted into regular contracts, starting with Detroit. Guard Stanley Umud was given a standard deal, uh, as was Warriors guard Lester Quinones. And Chicago Bulls uh, wingman Honorlap Bittim, and I hopefully am pronouncing that correctly. I meant to look up the pronunciation because I knew it's a tricky one. Uh, couldn't quite find it. He's a Turkish player. Um, but all three of those guys, congratulations for getting that standard deal, being on the team full time, not having to do the two way thing. Um, we'll see if they can, you know, find long term roles on these teams and and you know flower and grow into uh, the NBA game. Uh, two way deals that were were signed. Uh, players with that opportunity with some new teams uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks guard Ryan Rollins for the Cleveland Cavaliers forward Pete Nance. Uh, for the Brooklyn Nets, guard forward Jalen Martin. Uh, for the New Orleans Pelicans, forward Malcolm Hill. Uh, the Detroit Pistons signed two new uh, two-way guys, forward Tosan Uoma and guard Buddy Beheim. The Portland Trailblazers signed guard Ashton Higgins, and then the Golden State Warriors signed guard Pat Spencer. So those are your two-way contracts that were signed. Finally, some, uh, well, actually not finally, next, some 10-day contracts. The 76ers brought in Darius Baisley. The Hornets brought in center Marcus Bolden. Uh, the Knicks brought in both forward Jacob Toppin and guard Daquan Jeffries. Toppin technically was on a two-way deal. Now he gets a 10-day contract, so definitely high stakes for him. Uh, the Pelicans bring in guard Jalen Crutcher. The Raptors signed guard DJ Carton. The Timberwolves signed forward Justin Jackson, and the Washington Wizards signed guard Justin Champagne, or Champagne, of course, the brother of Julian, uh, who's on the San Antonio Spurs. Finally, a couple of waived players, starting with a surprising one. The Thunder have waived forward Alexei Pokashevsky. Perhaps not too surprising. He had a lot of injury troubles the last couple of seasons, especially. Um, and with them finding a, a seemingly potential uh, contending young core, uh, certainly a top team in the West this season. Uh, they feel like they can waive Pokashevsky and they're focused now on just solidifying a roster, you know, bringing in veteran supporting players. So Pokashevsky uh, is a free agent, as is guard Malcolm Kazalon, uh for the Detroit Pistons. So a lot of moves made by, made by the Pistons and a lot of moves around the league in the transactional department. When it comes to other news, uh, big coaching change. The Brooklyn Nets have parted ways with head coach Jock Vaughn. Of course, this happened several days ago. Um, we didn't have a chance to report on it till now. Assistant coach Kevin Ollie named interim head coach uh, for the you know not great Nets so far this season. Uh, we'll see how they respond with coaching change. Um, some updates on that Isaiah Stewart situation. I believe we reported on it uh, just before the All-Star break. Of course, if we didn't, We'll give a real brief summary before the Pistons were to play the Suns in Phoenix. I believe it was in Phoenix. Um, Isaiah Stewart involved himself in an altercation with Drew Eubanks. Uh, basically, Stewart punched Eubanks to boil it down real simply. Um, the updates on that front, uh, Isaiah Stewart suspended three games without pay for that physical altercation with Drew Eubanks. However, the assault charge that was initially given against him or, or, or charged to him has been dismissed. So no legal repercussions, it seems, but he'll he'll have to be suspended for a little bit. Um, I just want to know what happened. What, what instigated this? Why did that happen? Um, but 
who knows? Maybe we'll get the the skinny on that in the future. Um, a couple of unfortunate injury updates uh, for the Chicago Bulls. Firstly, forward Patrick Williams to have season-ending surgery on initial bone edema in his left foot. And I have to be honest, I'm not sure exactly what that means, the bone edema or how that works. Um, me showing my unintelligence with the human body and with health. But um, certainly we want to wish him the best as he works to recover from that surgery. Hopefully he's back on the court soon. Another guy we hope is back on the court soon for the Atlanta Hawks center on Onyeko Kungu. He's out indefinitely with a sprained left toe. Of course, that doesn't rule out a return to action, but not encouraging that there's not really a timetable at the moment. But uh, again, wishing both him and Williams the best as they work to get back on the court as soon as possible. Uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks, a note for the future, they are bidding to bring either the 2027 or 2028 NBA, NBA All-Star Weekend to Milwaukee and Pfizer Forum. Uh, so Milwaukee hoping to be a future All-Star Weekend host um, within the next four or five years. Uh, well, actually, next three or four years, it would look like. Um, good news for former NBA champion Scott Pollard, of course, a veteran. Uh, you know, he was a long time. Uh, big man uh, for, for a number of teams, good teams. Um, and we noted, uh, reported rather, I think within the last couple of weeks that he was in need of a heart transplant. He had a successful heart, heart transplant uh, within the last couple of days. Um, so that's great news that he was able to find uh, a successful, uh, you know, heart that would be able to, you know, he'd be able to do the transplant. And uh, we're certainly wishing him the best as he works to, uh, get acclimated and, and get right to uh, continue the rest of his life post-playing career. Um, and finally, a sad note, but we want to recognize um, a great player. Uh, former NBA player Robert Reed passed away Wednesday at the age of, of 68. And Reed, not always a recognizable name to the casual fan. Um, he wasn't quite an all-star um, recognized player. Um, didn't quite win any championships, but he was a great player for the Houston Rockets, especially um, played for, for the teams like the Hornets later in his career as well. But um, he was a, a great wingman, uh, swingman, and and played on some, some great Rockets teams in the 80s. So uh, best wishes to, to his family this time. Um, a great player and a great person, I imagined. Um, but that is the end of our uh, – News, we're all caught up, so let's go ahead and jump into our franchise focus for a top West team that we've danced around a little bit this episode, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Franchise focus. Yes, the OKC Thunder, Oklahoma City. Uh, if you want to categorize them this certain way, and this will be part of the uh, franchise focus here, they could be the NBA's youngest franchise. Um, if you don't count the supersonic history that precedes it um, again, we'll get into that in a moment. Starting from 2008 onward, the Thunder have had a fantastic history in recent years. They had gone into their first true rebuild in the Oklahoma city part of their history. Um, but, of course, last season uh, with their sniff at a chance of the play-in tournament and this season's accelerated growth of the roster, the team is very much back in a, a, a forefront of the Western Conference uh, discussion. 
And you look at the roster, they've had some, some recent moves they've made, of course, with the trade deadline. Um, their roster seems a touch more balanced. Um, of course, the starting lineup, we mentioned it with the game breakdown. Shea Gilders-Alexander, again, an MVP-level player this season, leading them at the point guard. High-scoring point guard, but he can do a bit of everything. Great as a two-way player. Alongside him at the off-guard, Josh Giddy, uh, versatile Australian player, has had some, of course, off-the-court allegations and issues. Um, aside from that, he, when he's at his best, we've seen he can be a very versatile player. Um, Lou Dort playing as an undersized small forward, and that is a theme for a lot of what the Thunder do. Um, they're very uh, in vogue with the modern uh, ideas of basketball in terms of going very small, shooting, versatility, ball handling from all sorts of players. Um, but interestingly enough, Dort a little more of a specialist as a defender, uh, great si- strength, even though he's undersized as technically a, a small forward, you think of him more as maybe a shooting guard. Uh, but he can hit the open three, but he's got great defensive ability to kind of tie the lineup together. Then Jalen Williams, again, more of a, a shooting guard, maybe a small forward, playing the power forward, Santa Clara, Santa Clara Jalen Williams, this is. Um, but playing the power forward spot and doing a good enough job. Then they've got the quote-unquote rookie drafted, um, not this last draft, but the draft prior, missed all last season, but now he's starting. Chet Holmgren, uh, versatile, getting shadowed by Wemby's impact in San Antonio, but Holmgren has been great for a winning Thunder squad. You know, he can he can get you points if you need him to. He'll grab boards. He'll get blocks. He hasn't been immense in averages in any of those categories, but he's consistent. And especially as a rookie, he's still very impressive. Uh, And then the bench is where things get interesting. You know, smaller starting lineup, but it works and they've been playing well. They have a lot of interesting bench pieces that has shifted with trade deadline moves. It's still pretty much true. Me, as the old-fashioned basketball guy, I'm going to point to, well, I'm not a big fan of their front court depth when it comes to size, especially. As I have it right now, their backup, you know, backups at a center-type spot with Holmgren out of the game would be Jalen Williams, uh, as far as Arkansas J- Jalen Williams, you know, L-I-N Jalen Williams, um, who's, you know, an undersized power forward. You have Bismack Biombo, a very recent signing who's aging, and even then he's still undersized as a center. Or you play Usman Jiang, who's a power forward at the center, but he's more sizable. They've made it work, and we've seen plenty of teams in recent history show that it can work. Um, but centers are still valuable. And if you're talking about a Western Conference playoffs, let's say you face the Nuggets. And you have Jokic being guarded by any backups like Jalen Williams, Bismack Biombo, Osman Jiang. I feel like he would have his way there. Holmgren would be a much closer matchup, but that would be a concern. But otherwise, skill wise, you know, level of player wise, Jalen Williams is a solid player coming off the bench. Uh, Biombo, a veteran, of course. Osman Jiang is is very young. Um, so hard to say too much with him. But the rest of the, the backups I like, of course, they added Gordon Hayward, as we mentioned. 
Uh, as long as he can stay healthy and he has certainly a reduced role here, uh, he'll be valuable as a veteran in the locker room, but also uh, a versatile player in his own right. Kenrich Williams, uh, a nice forward combo forward. You can slide him a, a, around in those spots. Case and Wallace coming off the bench, the rookie guard. I like him. His kind of defensive ability gives them a defensive presence outside of Dort and Holmgren. Isaiah Joe has been an overachiever there as a, a scoring guard. Aaron Wiggins, similar, but a less, lesser extent. And then Lindy Waters, the third. Um, I really don't know a lot about his game at all. And so I don't want to, A, don't want to misreport on his game. And B, I do apologize for not being familiar. Doesn't get a lot of minutes. Um, I'm sure he's a, a nice guy. But um, yeah, the, the roster is a great mix. Great credit to the head coach, Mark Dagnall. Um, this team has been so impressive. And again, they're ahead of schedule. That's really the theme with this Thunder squad. If you're a Thunder fan, you're ecstatic because this team was supposed to be a play-in tournament mixed team this year, maybe a, a fifth or sixth seed in the West. Um, but right now they're second in the Western Conference, just one game behind the Timberwolves. Um, again, with that win against the Clippers, they separated themselves. They're now a game and a half ahead of the Clippers, just one game behind the Timberwolves. So they're right there in the mix for the Western Conference crown, or at least a first round bye for the playoffs. Um, so even if they don't do that well in the playoffs this year, you figure they have all these pieces that they're going to be a fixture for the next several years. And they, of course, have the fantastic GM and Sam Presti. Um, he's just been so phenomenal in what he's done, um, building the finals participant teams of the early to, to, uh, early 2010s with Durant, Westbrook, Harden, um, maintaining the team around Westbrook, and then with this latest rebuild has just seemed to get, hit all the right pieces. Um, he's been unbelievable as a, as a GM. And so he gets a lot of credit, a lot of credit also to, to the head coach. And this team is exciting. You know, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see how this team finishes up the season and what they can do in the playoffs for the moment. Super exciting for SGA and Holmgren, that duo combined with Jalen Williams, uh, Santa Clara, Jalen Williams, that is that trio could be the next wave of, you know, what Durant, Westbrook, and Harden or Durant, Westbrook, and Serge Ibaka were for those teams. And it's a very exciting time for the Thunder. They, you know, they, they have no reason to uh, <laughs> to complain, really. Very short rebuild, and now they're top in, in the top of the Western Conference mix yet again. And so that's the current Thunder team. And now we get into the potentially controversial section of our franchise focus for a few people. And I want to talk about that real quick because last year's franchise focus for the thunder, I believe we talked about, of course, the team at that time. We also talked about um, the 20, 2020 Oklahoma city thunder, the year they had Chris Paul. And that was an interesting mix. And then as a legendary player, we talked about, Oh, I like a Serge Ibaka, maybe um, someone of that category. In fact, I can comb back through here real quick and and find that franchise focus. 
Yeah, it was. Serge Ibaka we talked about. And the important thing there, again, with the supersonics mentioned, I didn't touch that because I myself am a big advocate for the Sonics need to return to the NBA and the history of how the supersonics left to go to Oklahoma city is rife with controversy with, uh, hurt feelings, shades of art model, moving the Browns out of Cleveland. Um, if you're an NFL fan, you know, just a, a lot of, um, sadness for the Seattle fan base and, and anger at times as well. So when I, mention the supersonics history as part of a thunder franchise focus. I don't want to, I don't want that to be in the face of Seattle fans and supersonics fans. Um, mainly because a I'm on their side, the supersonics do need to return, but B it would also feel weird to do a franchise focus for a team that technically exists as another franchise at the moment. It's weird both ways. And so I have to do it just the, the only way that I can right now. We talked about the current Thunder team, but these next two slots, if you want to separate it, we can. These next two slots are going to be about the Supersonics history because you can't ignore it. They had such a phenomenal impact and history in the NBA. They won an NBA championship, and that's actually the team we'll talk about. Um, they've been to the finals three times. Uh, playoffs most of those times they've had a number of head coaches that were phenomenal um, great players up and down their history um, but yes we're talking about the, the championship team because again if we're taking time to talk about the supersonics now we got to start with their best team the 1979 seattle supersonics winners of 52 games uh, in the regular season winners of the Def pacific division title and eventually winners of the nba championship and it starts with head coach Lenny Wilkins. You know, before this, I was going into a little bit of the research, and it's so interesting. He was brought into the Supersonics as a player early in their history, and he was one of their early all-stars, great point guard, um, became the player coach of the Supersonics, which launched him into his coaching career where he was even better than he was as a player. And he was a very good point guard, an all-star, multiple-time all-star as a coach, he's one of the great coaches in NBA history, but his joining of the supersonics as a player coach launched that. Then they have a shakeup. There's new management. There's new ownership. They want Lenny to uh, either choose coaching or playing. They don't want him doing both. And he decides, well, I want to keep playing. And then a different regime uh, or the same regime decides, well, we're going to trade you to uh, to Cleveland. And he finished up his playing career there. And I kind of sidetracked the Supersonics. After a while, they're building again. They have Bill Russell as a head coach for a while. Um, at a certain point, they bring Wilkins back in, this time as a front office person. And he technically wasn't the GM. It was another GM at that time, but he was more on the, you know, uh, arena functions and, and the business side of the franchise versus the players and the actual team success. And so Wilkins was a, a director of player personnel. He kind of was the GM in all but title. He helped construct the roster. 
and then they went through another head coach and and eventually in the 78 season there's a, a head coaching vacancy and Wilkins decides I'll give it a shot as a coach so he gets a chance to actually coach the Supersonics he's also dis- doing the decisions as far as the roster goes he builds a lot of the roster to come another GM comes in later to to let him just focus on the coaching and from there 78 season 79 of course where they win the championship and onward they were one of the top teams in the western conference no doubt um and 78 and 79 they were the best team in the west uh back to back finals appearances they were better than the lakers who had kareem better than the suns better than all those guys um and what a mix the 79 team fantastic you've got a young jack sigma who you know, the most I've heard about Jack Sigma in recent years was when they did that prank on Shaq on Inside the NBA. And it was, oh, greatest centers of all time, April Fool's Day. Jack Sigma listed ahead of Shaq, and he gets all offended because, yeah, of course that would be absurd. And he takes it too seriously. Um, but he was a very good center. He was a, a seven-time All-Star, all-defensive one year. He was technically the first three-point shooting big man, really. Uh, his final years in Milwaukee, he attempted two or three three-pointers a game and shot about 30, 35, 36% from three. So he kind of started that uh, new facet and something that's in vogue today. But in his prime with Seattle, he was incredible. I mean, he, he wasn't... In the caliber of a, a Patrick Ewing, a Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, certainly. But he was a guy that would consistently give you 10 to 12 rebounds a game, uh, scoring nearly 17 or 18 points a game. Um, a, a solid enough defender would get you a steal or a block or a couple of those every game. And he was a, a solid passer, probably next to Bill Walton, one of the better passing centers, especially of the 70s. Uh, three or four assists a game from that center spot good shooting mid-range shot. He was very versatile and a great young center for them to have to work around. But really the team was led by the backcourt. Dennis Johnson and Gus Williams um, were incredible. Dennis Johnson, this is the very beginning of his career as well. Uh, Early on, he was uh, an all-defensive teamer. Of course, he'd make the all-defensive team nine times in his career. He was a multiple-time All-Star for the first time this very season. Um, He had 16 points a game, five boards, three assists. Sort of a shooting guard. Of course, he was the point guard for those great Celtics teams. Um, But he was an off-guard here, defensively focused, but an All-Star caliber player. And then you have Gus Williams, uh, a touch more of a veteran, had his start in Golden State. But then with Seattle, was the lead point guard and the lead scorer. Uh, for the team, distributed, good ball hawk, you know, got some steals, led the team in the playoff run in scoring. He averaged uh, nearly 27 points a game over the playoffs and in the finals averaged like 28 or 29 a game. Uh, so he stepped up his scoring as did Dennis Johnson. Uh, and those are the stars. You know, it, A lot of people say it's not really a star-studded team. I think it is. It's just not the the stars that people remember in terms of, you know, 70s, you're talking Dr. J or John Havlicek or or those players. These guys were still star-level players. They're just not as remembered by 
the the more casual fan, I would say. Uh, then you add John Johnson at the small forward, who is just a, a solid uh, glue presence in there. And Paul Silas, a veteran uh, big man who was just a rebounding machine and he was a, a, a force inside. He was uh, imposing as, as a, uh, an inside presence. Um, again, long time veteran, not afraid of anything. And they had um, a veteran guard in Freddie Brown, downtown Freddie Brown fan favorite um, could give you the, the scoring and the shooting coming off the bench. Um, they had Wally Walker coming off the bench as well. He would go on to be uh, a general manager for the supersonics himself, um, but an okay wing coming off the bench. They had Lonnie Shelton, I believe. Uh, oh, he was the the forward, um, most likely the the starting fo- power forward on this team, if not Paul Silas, probably a mix of those two guys. Solid rebounder uh, and a decent scorer in his own right. Shelton and Silas kind of, you know, locking it down there. They had Tom Lagarde as the backup center. Um, admittedly, I think the previous year they had a little more of an exciting backup big in um Marvin Webster. Um, but Lagarde got it done. He was he averaged about 11 points, eight boards a game that season. Very impressive as a backup center. Uh, those were the big headliners for them, really. They also had Dick Snyder, Dennis Autry, um, but a great mix. And it's sort of similar again to teams like the 04 Pistons, where there were stars, <laughs> excuse me, but it was more a, a team emphasis, what the team did. You know, if you're the broadcaster covering the team, you're likely going to talk about what they did as a team versus what what any individual player did in that sense of it. So um, just a great run. And again, we're talking supersonic, so we got to recognize their greatest team. Uh, they go to the finals versus the Washington Bullets. And it's funny because they had made the finals the previous year um, in a year that was you know, started off very wrong for them in 78. Uh, So we're sort of cheating. We're giving you a little bit of two seasons here, but in 78, they started with like, you know, what is that? 12, 13 losses in their first 18 or 19 games. Um, They started awfully. That was when the coaching change was made to have Lenny Wilkins as the coach. Um, They had, you know, a bunch of wins. They were able to rattle off. Um, finished with a 47-35 record. Uh, very impressive, especially with that start to the season. Yeah, Bob Cop- Hopkins was the previous coach, 5-17. and 17, And then Wilkins takes over and they go 42-18. and 18. Uh, Just a complete turnaround. They go on a Cinderella playoff run to the finals, lose in a heartbreaking seven games to the Washington Bullets. Bullets get their first and only ever uh, championships in their franchise history. So the following year in 79 is a rematch versus those same bullets who are even more aging. They're trying to repeat with guys like Elvin Hayes and Wes Unseld. It was a little past their time, even though they still got to the finals, but the Supersonics team that year in that final series, uh, we're not going to be denied uh, five game series. They dropped the first game, but then went on to win four straight to, to clinch the series. Again, Gus Williams, 29 points a game in the series. Uh, Jack Sigma averaged 16 points, 15 boards, and three blocks. Dennis Johnson, two steals, two blocks, along with 22 and a half points. 
six boards, six assists. He was the MVP of that series, was named the MVP. Um, Gus Williams' leading scorer, though. Uh, but that trio was very stout. And then, again, the support, solid supporting cast around him. You know, Silas and Shelton at the power forwards getting boards. Uh, John Johnson doing a lot of things around him. I mean, 12 points or 11 and a half points, eight boards, seven assists. Not any stats to sneeze at. John Johnson was a solid player and uh, just a great mix. Fred Brown with nine points off the bench on uh, some pretty good shooting numbers. Uh, this was, of course, the season before they added the three-point line to uh, to the NBA game. And it was also the season before the Lakers added one Magic Johnson. And that's really the story of a bit of why the Supersonics weren't, you know, even more well-respected for what they did. They The time to reminisce on those Sonics teams and for them to maybe even compete for more championships in that Western Conference. Again, they had gone back-to-back 78 and 79, but then Magic joins the Lakers and the Lakers dominated the 80s and became the team of the of the decade so much so that what became what came before was a little bit of race especially with what the pairing of Bird and Johnson along with the emergence of Michael Jordan those three players and those three teams accelerated immensely the growth of the NBA in popularity. A lot of that thanks to the the commissionership of uh, David Cern. But the 70s gets forgotten. And the 70s is my favorite era of pro basketball. Um, Not a lot of people, I think, would say that. And I'm not trying to be cool by saying that. But it genuinely is, of course, my favorite player. Pistol Pete Maravich played in the 70s. Um, But the Supersonics capped off that decade as the West's best team. And then they were superseded by the dominant West team of the eighties and the Lakers. And so we forget how great these supersonics teams were. Dennis Johnson, um, you know, Lenny Wilkins is the coach. Um, everyone involved. It was a, a fantastic mix of, of players and, and team and coach and a, a great roster. And again, the supersonics have a fantastic history. We'll end off with our legendary player. And we're going to talk Sean Kemp. Um, Kemp is an interesting figure to talk about Um, from before his Supersonics days to after his Supersonics days. Everything around his Supersonics career is kind of troubled and seemingly, you know, didn't go that well. I mean, he he was a great high school player, committed to play at Kentucky, wasn't able to attend due to a low SAT score. Uh, and the college regulations. So he uh, he was still at Kentucky, had a little bit of a, a, a team controversy while there, uh, ends up transferring to a community college in Texas. Trinity Valley doesn't play there. Uh, he, he attends school um, like he did in Kentucky. He did not play any basketball, you know, in the college years, that year removed from high school. Um goes in for the draft anyways. And he had enough of a, a high school resume to work with. And it was in the era where, of course, the the high school player was starting to be a little more highly valued. Not quite highly enough valued to be, you know, a top 10 pick, but he was still a first rounder, 17th pick to the Supersonics in 89. And his Supersonics days were, 
you know, you'd argue the the best run. <clears throat> Excuse me, they could have been. In the 90 season, he starts one game of the 81 that he played. Um, six points, four boards a game, but got more opportunities a little bit as the season went on. Next year in 91, he has a chance to start, and he averages 15 points a game, eight and a half rebounds, one and a half blocks, one steal, two assists. Hugely impressive numbers. He gets in the MVP or the MIP conversation, most improved conversation. 92, 15 points a game, again, 10 rebounds. And then 93 to 97, five straight years, he was a five-time All-Star. And when you talk Supersonics and Sean Kemp, a lot of it will be reduced to and remembered by the highlight dunks. He was the rain man. And especially with the, the duo he formed with Gary Payton, he would throw down some of the, the biggest highlight reel dunks, especially of the nineties. Sean Kemp is always going to be a fan favorite um, for what he did in the air, acrobatics, throwing down impressive dunks. Um, he was, you know, that, that was where he excelled, but he was a great player outside of that. The five years that he was an all-star in Seattle, he averaged uh, about 10.7 rebounds per game, 18.6 points per game, uh, one and a half blocks, one and a half steals, two assists, very, very solid stout stat line, consistent all-star. He got MVP, MVP votes some years. And I would say that's a bit far, but he was one of the top 20 players in the NBA in those years. No question. He was, he was very stout. If you want to talk MVP of the supersonics, you'd probably say Gary Payton, but that duo combined shades of Stockton Malone, that duo was able to lead the supersonics to consistent contention in the Western conference, uh, in a very heated Western conference, again, jazz, as we mentioned, but also the Houston Rockets, the San Antonio Spurs, the Phoenix Suns. Um, all of those teams were vying for Western conference supremacy and making the finals in various years. And um, in 96, that year was, that was a year for the supersonics to make the finals. It was Kemp's best year as a pro uh, nearly 20 points a game and 11 and a half rebounds. His uh, his best percentages uh, from the floor, that was his best year as a pro and as a Supersonics. They make it to the playoffs. Of course, they face the 72-win Chicago Bulls that were not going to be denied a championship, and so they couldn't win that series. The following year, still very great. They don't have as great a playoff success, and he wants out of Seattle. He wants to go somewhere else. He gets traded to Cleveland, makes the all-star team that first year in Cleveland and was still very productive those three years that he was in Cleveland. But following that, he then struggled with um, the conditioning issues, had some other off-court issues, um, fizzled out at the end of his career. His final season, he started a bunch of games at center for the Magic um, at the tail end of their Tracy McGrady years and as they were starting to go into a downturn. Um and that's how the career ends, and it it fizzles out uh, for a player that was so impressive and so notable, again, for what he did stylistically as just kind of a shame, you know. At various points, he's been visible alongside Gary Payton, and he's been, um, you know, with Payton in terms of 
you know, advocates along with the Seattle fan base for bringing the supersonics back. Um, and he, he's a, I don't know. He's just such an interesting figure just this last year. Of course, he was brought up in controversy um, for, for a gun incident in the Seattle area. He just has had these issues all surrounding again, before, before his playing career and after his supersonics days in Seattle, all of that kind of went away. He was able to just lock into basketball and despite no college experience being a year removed from, from the high school game and coming in a, a decent, you know, decently high pick, but not given a starting opportunity and having some odds kind of stacked against him. He went on to become a fantastic player. And I think we should definitely celebrate what he meant to the supersonics. And ultimately for me, it's hard to think Sean Kemp without of course, going to, to the highlight plays. If nothing else, he contributed iconic moments, iconic dunks. Um, I mean, the Lister blister. Anytime I think Sean Kemp, that's probably the first thing I think of is that dunk over Alton Lister, throws it down, points right at him. Um, fantastic highlight and uh, a great player. Always looks great too with those fantastic Supersonics jerseys. Um, another reason it'd be great to see the, the Supersonics return, get those as throwbacks. That would be so, so much fun. But that is it for our Supersonics tangent. Again, hopefully if you're uh, a Seattle fan, a Supersonics fan, you understand the reverence that I hoped to approach that with. Um, because again, the Thunder, it's part of their history technically. Um, so that seems like the only logical way to approach it in terms of covering that team's history. But um, with that, that takes care of our franchise focus. Let's go ahead and uh, shift focus. We're not going to do any fantasy discussion because not much has changed, really. Um, and so we'll just talk about some of the latest predictions or checking in on some of the predictions of course, a lot of them before the trade deadline we discussed, and we also talked about whether they came true or not, or if we didn't, we'll do that towards the end of this uh, podcast season. But for now, let's talk about some other predictions that are going to be in the mix as we get to the end of the season. Week one, I made a prediction that the Kings would end the season as a top four team in the Western Conference. Right now, that's looking a bit sketchy. They're eighth in the West. Um, they would be... They're four and a half games out of the top four. Um, it's not completely out of the conversation, but uh, that's looking a little bit rough. We'll see what happens there. The The only individual player one we'll talk about real quick. Uh, I predicted Scotty Barnes will be in the defensive player of the year conversation. I think that could happen. Of course, he's been defensively very good. Um, I predicted he would be an all-star as well, and that did end up coming true. I'll pat myself on the back there. Um but I'll also follow that with my week four prediction. That I was very wrong in the Clippers. I predict that the Clippers will be ousted in the play in tournament this year. Um, Clippers third in the, the West right now, sizable lead ahead of, you know, six, seven, eight. Um, so that likely will not happen again. Technically there's still a chance, but it really is not looking great. Then we jump up to week 13 uh, with the Siakam trade, I said the Pacers would be a top four team in the East. They're hanging in there. They're only two and a half games behind the fourth spot Knicks. So there's a chance. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see if they can make that jump. And then in week 15, I predicted that the West top four teams would end the season separated by 
five games. And that's looking like it's very much going to be true. Timberwolves, Thunder, Clippers, Nuggets at the moment, all separated by just two and a half games. So that is a very close race. Otherwise, Wyatt did make a couple of predictions that we are going to focus on here as well. In week five, he said the Thunder would be a top five team in the West playoffs. That looks like it'll probably be a home run prediction. Um, And I think at the time he said, yeah, it's probably a safe prediction. And then in week 11, he said that the East top six teams at that time would finish in, uh, I think, that same order. At least it would be those same teams. And if we go back to when that prediction was made, the top East teams were Celtics, Bucks, Sixers, Magic Heat, Pacers. So no Cavs, no Knicks in that mix. So that has very much changed. Um, and I think it might stay more with what it is now, but it's hard to say. We'll see what happens uh, as we close out you know, the rest of the regular season uh, in the next few weeks. So that's our check-in on our predictions. And let's real quick do our weekend forecast. Again, all of the times that I will give for these games are in Eastern Standard Time. So keep that in mind as you're planning your schedule around any of these potential games. Saturday, tomorrow, we have three games total. One national broadcast on ABC at 830. Uh, it's a classic Atlantic Division showdown. The New York Knicks host the Boston Celtics. Celtics in Madison Square Garden, the top team against one of the hotter teams in the Knicks. Uh, should be a great matchup. I definitely watch that one. The other two games, uh, at 8 o'clock, the Pistons will host the Magic. And then at 9, the Timberwolves will host the Brooklyn Nets. Then we go to Sunday, 11 games, uh, four national broadcasts. Big return to action after the All-Star weekend. Um, two games, uh, an a- ABC doubleheader to start things off. At 1 o'clock, the 76ers will host the Milwaukee Bucks. And then at 3.30, the Phoenix Suns will host the Los Angeles Lakers. Then you go to ESPN for a doubleheader there. At 7 o'clock, the Golden State Warriors host the Denver Nuggets. And then at 9.30, the LA Clippers host the Sacramento Kings. A lot of great matchups there. Sixers-Bucks takes a hit without Embiid playing, but it's still intriguing. Lakers-Suns, as long as LeBron plays, should be fantastic to watch as should be the Nuggets and the Warriors, uh, and as should be Kings Clippers, underrated of those four. Uh, but that might be the one I'd be most intrigued by. Um, but a lot of great games there. The other games from Sunday night at 5 o'clock, the Pacers host the Mavericks. At 6, the Cavaliers travel to Washington to face the Wizards. Three games at 7 o'clock, Pelicans host the Bulls. Thunder in Houston against the Rockets, and then the Magic in Atlanta against the Hawks. At 8 o'clock, the Utah Jazz hosts the San Antonio Spurs. And finally, at 9, the Portland Trailblazers host the Charlotte Hornets. Again, a lot of great matchups in there. Um, I believe that's the Spurs' first time in Utah against the Jazz. Um, You know, I don't have tickets to that game. Uh, I imagine those tickets are going to be bumped up a little bit in price due to the fact that Wemby is in Utah. Um, We'll see. But otherwise, yeah. what was the other one? Magic Hawks, Southeast Division, always intriguing. Um, and then finally, Monday, four games total, uh, two national broadcasts as part of an NBA TV doubleheader. First thing at 7 o'clock, the Indiana Pacers host the Toronto Raptors, another matchup of Siakam versus former team. And then at 10 o'clock, the Sacramento Kings host the Miami Heat. Two teams a little bit underperforming their season expectations facing off against each other. And again, two storylines for the remainder of the season 
that are very interesting. Your other games, uh, the Knicks host the Pistons at 7.30, and finally the Grizzlies host the Nets at 8 o'clock. Uh, Knicks-Pistons, Bogdanovich and Burks versus the Pistons, and the Pistons are kind of new look. So much of their roster was changed over. Um, I'm curious how they finish out the rest of the season, regardless of, of play-in stakes or what have you. So that is your weekend forecast, and that's most of the show. Let's give you our This Day in History fact before we finish up today's episode. And for This Day in History, we're going back to 1986. On this day, uh, February 23rd, 1986, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Los Angeles Lakers, replaced Elvin Hayes as the NBA's all-time leader in games played when he appeared in his 1,304th game, a 117-111 overtime win at Philadelphia. Abdul-Jabbar went on to play in 1,560 games and is now second all-time to Robert Parrish, who played in 1,611 games. So uh, great historical note with some of the great players and great centers of all time to end off on. So uh, that's it for our show today. Again, thank you all for listening. We're back on the normal schedule. We should be back with you. Uh, We will be back with you on Monday. We should hopefully have Wyatt with us on Monday to go through our normal Monday stuff. We'll get you back on our MVP conversations, uh, power rankings, DEFCON levels, all of that good stuff. So it's going to be a great show. Uh, Again, thank you for listening and we'll have you tune in then.